My name is Nick Nesbitt. Uh, I'm in the French and Italian department here at Princeton and uh, also a member of this research group, Empires, Domination, Collaboration, and Resistance. And uh, happy to welcome everybody here today for this, uh, this workshop on the theme of violence and empire. Uh, and we'll be going from about 1.30 to 4.30. Uh, and each of us will take about 15 to 20 minutes to, to put forward some uh, positions and thoughts uh, uh, relative to our, our own work uh, uh, on, on this theme. And we'll have a little break, and then we'll come back and, and just open up the discussion to uh, whatever direction it may take. Uh, and so it's my pleasure to welcome uh, these distinguished colleagues here today to, to join us to talk about this theme. First, Gary Wilder, who's here from City University of New York, where he teaches in the Department of Anthropology. jean Godefroy Bidima, who is uh, 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 in the French department at uh, Tulane University, and uh, Alberto Moreras, who is at uh, Texas A&M University. And uh, I thought that I would uh, just begin for a few minutes to put forward a couple of um, uh, uh, points around the theme uh, of violence and its relation to imperialism, to colonialism, uh, and make a couple of points relative to my own work and the direction that that theme is taking me, uh, and to do that as sort of a launching pad for the, uh, the comments of our, of our guests. Um, so, uh, also I should say that this, that this uh, research group is part of Pierce, which is the, uh, um, I had it here, I can never remember the acronym, Princeton Institute for International and regional studies, that's right. And, uh, and so this is a three-year uh, project that is under the auspices of, of Pierce. Um, so imperialism, colonialism, violence, uh, obviously uh, I think we, we, can, we can begin from the position of the, the basic distinction between imperialism and colonialism, both being uh, different for historical forms of empire, and even though we know how difficult it is to actually make sort of uh, 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 distinctions that would stand up to, uh, to empirical scrutiny, uh, I think it's at least clear that imperialism has, has historically indicated uh, a state-based projection of power and domination relative to, uh, based upon an ideology, uh, whether that be a system of political domination or, as, of course, Lenin argued, uh, uh, economic exploitation. On the other hand, colonialism as primarily taking the form of either settlement colonialism or sort of capitalist or exploitation-based uh, process. And then in relation to that, we might, I might propose two different forms of violence that I think uh, can perhaps be useful categories for, for, for thinking about this relationship. What I would call, on the one hand, a structural or a mediated form, uh, forms of violence, or on the other hand, we could call phenomenological or existential or immediate 
modes of violence and domination. So if on the one hand, uh, an immediate forms of violence, uh, I think of things like the bulldozing of neighbor, neighborhoods uh, by, by colonial occupiers, or something like the Setif massacre in Algeria in 1945, where, where there was, a, there was a, 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 an uprising, a manifestation, and uh, 108 uh, French uh, uh, citizens uh, died, and there was a reprisal by the mil- military where something between 20,000 and 45,000 uh, Algerians or future Algerians were killed. And that, and that, that, that extreme, immediate violence was really what launched the Algerian Revolution, I think, and, and led it into this uh, situation and cycle in which there was a, a certain inevitability or absoluteness or untranscendability to the violent confrontation, unlike some of the other anti-colonial situations and moments of decolonization, some of which I think Gary's going to talk about, where there were different opportunities for more negotiated uh, 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 processes of decolonization. Um, On the other hand, structural uh, uh, mediated forms of violence, I think myself of of, of some of the Haitian example, uh, recent examples uh, coming from Haiti. For example, the 1980 uh, destruction of the wild pig population in Haiti that was uh, ordered by U.S. aid, by the the U.S. government organization because of the fear of uh, um, uh, uh, I forget what the virus was, but coming over from the Dominican Republic. And so this entire population uh, uh, of, of pigs that the, that the Haitian populace depended on for their, for their um, uh, well-being and their, their life was, was eradicated. And, and then a second moment of structural violence a few years later under Clinton where there was a whole system of uh, 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 U.S. subsidized rice imports that were brought in. Hey, come on in. And, and that, those subsidies were not directly, immediately violent and destructive to the Haitian population, which was already eating rice. But the problem, of course, was that there was a a uh, uh, self-sufficient farming community in in Haiti itself. It was was self-sufficient in its rice needs that was completely wiped out and devastated by these subsidies. And now today, there's almost no uh, Haitian rice. And the violence comes in, of course, to the, to the secondary effects of that sort of a, of a process where this, this, uh, 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 rural, these rural communities uh, were then, uh, many of the, the people were pushed into the city because they were, they, were, they were no longer viable to a large extent. And so you see things happening like the 2010 earthquake in Haiti that appear to be natural events, but in fact, uh, were uh, to a large extent predetermined by this huge uh, influx of a rural population because of these kinds of secondary mediated violences, which then become immediate violences in in a situation like an earthquake where the the completely substandard housing just falls apart and is devastated and there's a huge there's the huge loss of life that you see in an, in an event like that. Um, 
And then I, I just want to make um, a couple of comments uh, 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 around what I see as one of the most fundamental and still today compelling reflections on this problem of violence in colonial and imperialist situations, which is uh, Fanon's famous chapter on violence, the beginning of, of Wretched of the Earth. Uh, and I think that I've, I've recently come to believe that that text and the Wretched of the Earth as a whole sh- it has, has been largely misread. And, and what I mean by that is I, th- I think that there is a huge shift that, that Fanon's text, his last writing, that he's correcting the proofs when he's on his deathbed in, 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 in a hospital in Washington, uh, uh, marks this momentous shift both in, in intellectual um, uh, history, 20th century intellectual thought, but also in, in anti-colonial politics, which is uh, uh, schematically thought of as the shift from existentialism to structuralism, to, to put a name on it. That is to say, when we think of Fanon, I think we, most, we generally think of Fanon as, as, in the, as a sort of uh, anti-colonial Sartre, something like that, where he's, he's writing about the experience of the colonized, Right? And think of the, the text in, in uh, Peau Noir, Masque Blanc, uh, on the lived experience of the black subject, right? l'experience vécue du, du noir. And, and, and that text of Fanon's is clearly in that sort of existentialist mode, which starts from experience to arrive at a critique of in this case, uh, racism, alienation, uh, in, in his later writings, colonialism. Uh, and, and I think that Wretched of the Earth has largely been read along those lines because it sustains that, among other reasons, it sustains that Sartrean language, to say nothing of Sartre's preface, right? But, but Fanon is reading the critique of dialectical reason at the same time that he's writing Wretched of the Earth. But I think that, in fact, the Wretched of the Earth, for me, I, I, I've come almost to see it as, as the first attack on existentialist Sartrean humanism that's later going to be concretized in the next couple of years by figures like Althusser and Lacan and Foucault and all these other more familiar names, and we don't tend at all to, to associate Fanon with, with that movement. But I think even if you just look at the structure of Wretched of the Earth, it doesn't begin with experience and end up at structure, but it rather operates that key reversal, which is to start with structure as the enabling condition of any possible subjective experience, any possible subject. Uh, and uh, the chapter on violence itself in the terms that it lays out of the absolute, the absolute necessity of replacing one form of society, one form of what he calls humanity, substituting one species for another, he says, literally, uh, is, begins as a sort of structural 
critique. It, it, it begins as something like the critique of the mode of production of colonial violence, we might say. In other words, you look at that first chapter, and it's about the structure of, among other things, city space, the structure of space in colonial Algeria, and a critique of that space, and the implications of that structured space for the production of colonial, colonized, alienated subjects, uh, and, and gradually progresses through a critique of different modes of colonialism and neocolonialism, et cetera, to arrive finally at the postulation at the very end of a subjectivity, right? the humanism that comes in the conclusion. And I think that what you see in that text, which is still, as I say, sort of in this existentialist language and, and, and modality that, that Fanon never had a chance to pursue, who knows where he would have gone with it, nonetheless operates this primary, uh, makes this primary operation that switches from uh, the existentialist assertion that existence precedes essence, right, to flip things around and to follow through what was first articulated by, by Jean Cavaillès, the, the French philosopher who was also the head of the French resistance, and in his last book in 1942, he writes it from the German uh, 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 prison camp before, before he dies. And at the very end of the book, he, on, on the logic of science, uh, uh, he, he makes the, the basic uh, claim that subjectivity itself is, is a very vague and, 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 and uh, sort of impossible to pin down notion. And instead, what is necessary is to start from the concept. He says, Ce n'est pas une philosophie de la conscience, mais une philosophie du concept qui peut donner une doctrine de la science. And of course, Cavaillès is, is, is uh, speaking in terms of the history of science and the logic of science in its more traditional sense. Conguillem will pick that up. But of course, it's Althusser who will then give that, uh, the, the political resonance to that, to that statement, to that program. Uh, and so what does all that have to do with, with violence and colonialism? Uh, I think quite a bit. Um, let, so let me just finish up by, with one or, one or two paragraphs about one of the implications of, I think, what we, what we find in, in Fanon. Um, so it's, it's, it's obvious, I think, that, that Fanon's chapter on violence is wrongly taken to be a celebration of violence in this way that Hannah Arendt, I think, uh, grossly misread it. Uh, it's, it's clearly coming out of a very specific situation which is Algeria in the 1950s, in the Algerian Revolution. But it's doing conceptual work in this, in this way that will be really fully uh, developed by Althusser and his students, by Balibar, by, by all these other figures who, who come out of, of that, but not really 
by post-colonial studies. And I, and I think that that's one of the main points that I, that I want to put forward is, is, is that I think that the implications of this sort of a shift from a focus on experience as the starting point of critique to conceptual work as the starting point and subjectivity as the end point uh, uh, is, let's say, relatively underdeveloped in what we know as post-colonial studies, unlike uh, a, a lot of the other areas where, where that field has had such an impact. Of course, we can point to Said, we can point to people like Robert Young as well, who's a real Althusserian. Um, but still, I think that there's a, there, there, there are a lot of implications to be drawn there from this. And I, th- and I think one of those is, is something that we might call a theory of incommensurability, right? That when we're, when we're thinking about violence, uh, for example, in situations, whether they're contemporary or historical, like Algeria, like the Haitian Revolution, for example, that the, 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 what needs to be uh, under consideration is a possible understanding of the, the logic of that situation driving uh, its, its development uh, toward form, certain forms of violence, toward negotiated, relatively nonviolent forms of development, et cetera. And I think that what you see in certain situations, like Haiti in the 1790s and up till independence in 1804, or Algeria, I think that there are, there are certain uh, elements in, in common that are, that are, are striking. Um, uh, for example, there's, there's um, both of them were settler colonies. There's uh, a population of settlers who had invested their lives and capital in the colony. They were dedicated to preserving that investment at all costs. Significant profits were at stake in natural resources, sugar, oil, respectively, Haiti and Algeria. Uh, The anti-colonial war in each case reached extreme degrees of immediate violence on each side. The rules of civilized warfare were largely abandoned to to terrorism, torture, etc. And each culminated uh, in in a a world historical defeat of, 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 a, of, a, of an imperial European, French in both cases, uh, army. That is, Haiti was the first defeat of Napoleon. It wasn't Spain. It was, it was Haiti, but it's often, or Saint-Domingue, uh, 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 slightly, slightly before. Um, and also, each, uh, uh, certainly in the Haitian case, each led to the formation of a, of a deracialized national culture, open to all in that Jacobin or black Jacobin sense of all who subscribe to the new nation's constitution, right? So that the Haitian constitution of 1805 specifically invents this new category of citizen, neg, right? Anyone, any human being who sets foot within this new independent state without slavery is, will be known as black, right? Whatever their phenotype, right? And and so 
that it uh, uh, invents this this sort of brilliant manner to to uh, open up a structural possibility for a post-racial state in a in a in a in a, in a very fascinating way. Um, all right, so my time is about up. So. Uh, Last point. Um, what, what then might be the relevance of what I'm largely projecting as a historical moment that uh, is, is familiar to us, but familiar to us as a European history of ideas, right? The shift from Sartre to Althusser, from existentialism to structuralism, uh, et cetera, and, and, and my claim that, in fact, this is prefigured as a, as a uh, within anti-colonial uh, critique, uh, and, and even already also in the case of Haiti, which is to say that the Haitian Revolution, among lots of other things, was a moment in which there was put forward a, a militant structural critique uh, of a global system, plantation slavery, an Atlantic world system, as, as Wallerstein and others are going to say uh, much much later, but already figures like Toussaint Louverture, Dessalines, uh, the Baron de Vaté, writing a few years later under Henri Christophe, are are explicitly seeing plantation slavery as a global system that has to be uh, uh, destroyed. Absolutely, Fanon will say about Algeria that has to be destroyed absolutely and replaced with an utterly other system that is a system on the, to begin with in which slavery is legitimate, viable, continuous versus a system in which uh, uh, humans are to be distinguished from property for the first time, let's say. Uh, and I think, so those are two historical examples, but today I still think of Haiti and uh, uh, the necessity of getting beyond the immediacy of, say, mediatized violence. That is, the suffering uh, of the earthquake itself as, as the overpowering uh, media image, right, of, of, the, of the immediacy of death, the immediacy of homelessness, the immediacy of, of, uh, of cholera, of, of all, all these sorts of problems, uh, and the necessity the continued necessity of pushing forward not only uh, 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 a critique beyond the nation state, but also a structural critique. I think of books like Peter Hallward's Damning the Flood, which is in its, in its specific sort of Chomsky and register, I think is doing this kind of structural work. It's, it's, it's looking at a long history from 1986 to 2004 of the continued undermining of the viability of a, of a Haitian nation state. So not a model of a failed state, but rather the, the, the modalities of failing a state, something like that. And so I, that I, th- I think that that sort of theoretical work on uh, the ways that Structural violence is enacted today in different sites globally uh, remains remains necessary 
and, uh, and, and, and compelling uh, to pursue precisely so that we can better grasp the ways that these kinds of mediated structural violences lead to the, the horrible immediate violences of moments like the, the Haitian earthquake of, of 2010. So I'll leave it at that and, and uh, uh, pass the, the word on to uh, my uh, next guest, who I am very happy to welcome here. Gary Wilder is uh, an associate professor of anthropology at uh, CUNY, New York, and uh, he has written extensively on French empire uh, and uh, its the, the differential modes of decolonization in the post-war French nation-state in sites like uh, uh, Martinique and Guadeloupe and Senegal. Uh, he joined the faculty at CUNY in 2009, uh, and he has a joint degree in anthropology and history from the University of Chicago. Uh, he works on the French Empire, colonial states, historical anthropology, social and political theory, and he focuses on West Africa, the Antilles, and Europe. And uh, he's the author of what I think is an amazing book, the best book I've ever read on uh, French Third Empire uh, imperialism, uh, the French imperial nation state, negritude, and colonial humanism between the world wars, which was published by Chicago in 2005. Uh, and he is currently uh, completing what I think is going to be another amazing and necessary and fabulous book called Freedom Time, Federal Space, uh, Freedom Time, Federal Space, Negritude, Decolonization, and the future of the world. Gary, let me give you this microphone. Okay, here. Pass. <laughs> thank you. Sure. Thank you for the introduction. But also, I really want to just thank Nick for including me here today. Nick and I have been working and thinking in parallel for a number of years now, and we only recently met, maybe a couple of weeks ago. So it's a real treat to get to think more formally with you. Um, we've been reading each other's work and realizing that we were uh, kept hitting similar spots, although, as you'll see today, with different uh, inflections. But that's um, it's a treat, and I'm glad to have the opportunity to meet uh, Bidima and Alberto. So thank you. So violence. Um, the title of my kind of reflections uh, is Rethinking Violence as a Political Metric. So I'm trying to take up the theme that Nick suggested to us, uh, which was not the most straightforward thing for me, because although my work on empire and colonial government and emancipation certainly concerns the problem of violence through and through, Violence has not been a category that I've spent a lot of time thematizing or theorizing uh, in contrast to categories like domination or alienation. So I use this invitation as an opportunity to reflect uh, for myself a little bit in ways that I hope are useful on why it is that I kind of violence is everywhere and in some ways uh, nowhere explicitly in a lot of the writing I'm doing. And, and I realize that this stems in part from a kind of frustration with how violence has often been treated in two fields that I'm more familiar with, French colonial history on the one hand and colonial studies, post-colonial theory more broadly. So I'm going to talk about 
violence uh, in relation to those two fields. So first, in terms of French colonial history, one tendency or risk that I've come across again and again concerns how imperial violence can function for scholars as an alibi for empiricism. So once again, we're working in parallel. So I have comments here just without knowing what you're going to talk about, about uh, structural domination. So um, I encountered this instrumental invocation of violence in discussions around my first book, The French Imperial Nation State. So in the book, I analyzed a new form of administrative rule in West Africa that emerged in the interwar period. I attempted to understand this form of what I called colonial humanism in relation to a historically specific political rationality that recombined elements of statism, productivism, and welfareism, which were then refracted through the particular conditions and imperatives uh, of imperial policies at that time. The details aren't important. What's important, uh, and we can talk about them, we have a lot of time, is that I was trying to kind of account for and explain a logic of domination, a new form of government. And in this way, my argument challenged conventional historiographical approaches to similar subject matter, which typically presented ideological or moral critiques of colonial rule and imperial violence that tended to focus on unmasking hypocrisy by identifying contradictions between Republican ideology and violent practices as if republicanism could not itself on its own terms authorize, enable, or mediate forms of domination. Politically, this approach to colonial violence can function to protect what is essentially an ideological understanding of real republicanism as somehow antithetical to violence. But I also discovered that epistemologically, this kind of criticism often also provides cover for a nominalist or empiricist resistance to thinking structurally about historical processes and practices. So in these cases, uh, historians often invoked violence as a trump card that allowed them to discount this kind of attempt to understand political forms and logics that, I would argue, in fact, underlie and enable the everyday instances of colonial violence that were invoked as if our scholarly task were simply to describe and denounce instances of extreme violence rather than to seek to account for them. This empiricist tendency treats violence uncritically as the ineffable and ungraspable kernel of the real, that which is immediate and all-determining, as if mediated forms of domination were not, in fact, species of violence. Such scholars often figure violence as concrete, immediate, and real in order, whether wittingly or unwittingly, but effectively to affirm the assumptions of empiricism, which accords validity to facts or mechanisms that can be observed and documented and then placed in relations of mechanical causality, while, on the other hand, refusing to recognize the effective reality of real abstractions which are often treated either as ideological mystifications of reality or philosophical impositions on reality. So that's one kind of set of conversations about violence that I've run across. But on a completely different front, I would say that theorists also uh, can use the category of violence uncritically. And here I've discovered more recently in my my newer work uh, in scholarship on decolonization how violence can function as a supposedly self-evident metric of anti-colonial radicalism. Uh, 
So we're all quite familiar with an inherited political algebra that on one side of the equation aligns revolution, radicalism, direct action, and violence, and on the other, reform, moderation, gradualism, and parliamentarism. In this kind of political syllogism, each element of either series appears to be necessarily linked to all the others and just as naturally opposed to all elements of the opposing series. And it's that logic of equivalence that I would want to kind of question. Thus, the assumption that violence is, of course, a reliable index of political radicalism or the purported incompatibility between revolutionary projects and constitutional initiatives. Of course, we well know that there are historical grounds for linking revolutionary projects to direct action and violent tactics. But I wonder whether there is a logically necessary relation between them. And that's kind of a question I would float out there for us to discuss. I do believe there's an analytic danger in elevating this equation between violence and anti-colonial radicalism into a general political metric. For when we treat historical distinctions as analytic categories, we risk reenacting ideologically that which we should be attempting to explain critically. Thus, the scholarship that often rehearses or repeats post-war debates about decolonization, rather than developing a more nuanced understanding of the processes and pressures out of which precisely these kinds of debates emerged. As Nick mentions, of course, Fanon's Wretched of the Earth has served as a crucial reference point for subsequent thinking about violence in relation to colonialism and anti-colonial struggle. So I had already planned to say something about Wretched of the Earth, and then uh, in the spirit of dialogue, Nick had circulated uh, a paper uh, that he had re recently wrote on Fanon. So I refer specifically to that in, in a couple of places here, which his opening comments uh, referred to. Um, so we can regard Wretched of the Earth as both a source and a symptom of the use of violence as a political metric. Fanon's intervention certainly can be read as a set of general theoretical propositions. And here, my reading, your comments nuance your article in a slightly different direction. So we can talk about whether I'm reading you or misreading you properly. But Fanon's intervention can certainly be read as a set of general propositions and prescriptions about decolonization, as I would suggest it often is. But I have always understood this text as a phenomenological account of the lived experience of revolution during the Algerian struggle for national liberation, a process through which consciousness was raised, political subjectivities were crystallized, and absolutist positions were taken, a struggle whose contours make political sense in relation to that particular colonial situation and the way the French state prosecuted the war. So here I, I certainly agree with Nick's thoughtful and incisive reading of On Violence as a situated and specific text that also raised general questions and developed a universal, even absolute argument. Nick rightly reminds us that Fanon's primary, primary aim was to produce a critique of colonial violence in terms of which revolutionary violence was intelligible, legitimate, and necessary. He thus challenges facile liberal criticism that denounces Fanon for prescribing or celebrating indiscriminate violence. But there is a strain of radical criticism which developed in the wake of Fanon's intervention that I would question. A kind of current of thought that does treat Fanon's reflections on tactics as a universal prescription for struggle and a general metric of radicalism, which I don't think Fanon does and I don't think Nick does. 
um, and which therefore dismisses the radical credentials of any colonial actor who did not advocate or practice political violence in the service of decolonization. The point here is not whether one is for or against violence as such. In fact, Fanon's analysis invites us to examine the constraints and possibilities in any given political field in relation to which tactics and strategies for emancipation may be pursued. So the question of for or against violence is the wrong question to my mind. Instead of asking whether violence is or is not legitimate, I think following Fanon, or the way I follow Fanon, is that I think we should inquire into the prospects for disalienation, substantive self-determination, and human emancipation in a given particular, in a particular colonial situation. So the point is not whether violence can be legitimate, but whether and how violence may lead most effectively to a given political objective. For as Nick reminds us in his piece on Fanon's aim is not to glorify or fetishize violence, but to examine the conditions and processes through which colonial subjects can more fully realize their humanity. So I would suggest that the fundamental Fanonian, I have two different versions here, question is not whether violent, uh, fundamental Fanonian operation is not to identify and celebrate those actors using the most violent political methods, but to ask what methods might best lead to colonial emancipation figured as a process of human self-realization. So here I'm deliberately formulating these remarks in terms that correspond more closely to the thinking of figures I've been writing about, M.A. Césaire and Leopold Senghor from Martinique and Senegal, figures who are stereotypically contrasted with Fanon, for good reason, figures whom Fanon himself often criticized directly for being backward-looking nativists and neocolonial collaborators. But I would suggest that if we want to take seriously Fanon's commitment to an alternative future, a new man, and a post-imperial humanism, we should not forego the opportunity to read him in relation to Césaire and Senghor, thinkers who devoted their public lives to utopian visions of decolonization as human emancipation. Yet inherited assumptions about violence as a measure of anti-colonial authenticity or commitment have allowed many critics to simply discount Césaire and Senghor as moderate reformers whose naive or cowardly, hypocritical or opportunist practices contradicted their sometimes incendiary or utopian rhetoric. As a result, I would suggest neither colonial studies nor post-colonial theory have taken seriously their refusal to reduce colonial emancipation to national liberation or to read closely their programs for self-determination without state sovereignty. So in my current book project, Freedom Time, I've been trying to grasp this, the historical and political specificity of these efforts to reconstitute France as a post-national federation composed of freely associated member states. We can talk more about that. Without going into detail about the research now in these opening remarks, I'd just like to offer a few quick thoughts about how their interventions might create an opening for us to revisit the question of political violence. First, as I mentioned, using violence as a metric makes it difficult to even recognize these kinds of projects as imagining particular forms of decolonization decolonization rather than pursuing alternatives to decolonization. Political violence assumes a different valence when one does not begin from an absolutist or dogmatic conception of revolution or emancipation. Despite their many differences, Césaire and Senghor pursued decolonization with a mix of pragmatism and utopianism. 
So by political pragmatism, I do not mean a willingness to negotiate with adversaries or to compromise principles. Rather, I mean an experimental approach to politics, which combines a clear-eyed focus on political ends with a contextual flexibility concerning means. Given existing historical conditions, given the shape of a particular political landscape, these figures would ask, what are the best means to the desired political ends? Not, what do I have to give up to get something done? It's not that kind of pragmatism. And if a particular set of methods proved ineffective or if the political landscape changed in a determinate way, new means would be employed and political programs reoriented accordingly. So rather than start with the certainty that violent revolution was the necessary method for pursuing decolonization, they asked what a revolutionary form of decolonization might enable or create or look like. Then they would identify possible means for achieving that end. So this is the perspective from which we need to understand, for example, Senghor's references to the prospect of what he called a peaceful revolution, a notion to which I would suggest Césaire also implicitly subscribed. I would suggest that this notion appears baffling, and it certainly is frustrating and baffling for those of us on the, on the left who are sympathetic with the anti-colonial struggle, but it's more baffling if we define revolution in terms of political means or methods rather than political ends or vision. In different ways, Césaire and Senghor believed that a constellation of seemingly modest reforms could, when acting together, produce revolutionary consequences in part by inducing sets of interlocking transformations working at multiple scales. Thus, their beliefs that a series of constitutional adjust adjustments could literally reconstitute France itself, which is to say quietly explode the existing republic from within by inventing an unprecedented political form, that of a post-national democratic federation. In other words, they believe that overcoming France itself would be a more revolutionary outcome than simply violently ejecting French actors from their respective colonies and creating separate sovereign states. But insofar as they, they pursued the impossible in concrete and deliberate terms, these, were, these projects were as utopian as they were pragmatic. Césaire's and Senghor's orientation to decolonization, here's another point, also remind us that the question of violence must also be considered in relation to political scale. Revolutionary violence makes one kind of political sense if national liberation and state sovereignty are the aims, but what if anti-colonial actors begin with the recognition that there does not exist an outside of global capitalism and Cold War geopolitics? That formal independence may change the terms, but would not eliminate the interdependent, if asymmetrical, relationship between powerful states and formerly colonized peoples. However, imperfectly, Césaire and Senghor questioned the territorialist assumptions and autarkic desires that undergirded much post-war thinking about anti-colonial nationalism. They proceeded from the insight that real decolonization could not simply target the legal status of overseas colonies. It would have to recognize their entwined relationship with metropolitan France by transforming the entire empire, metropole included, into this democratic socialist federation. They hoped to fashion a legal and political framework that would recognize the history of interdependence which bound metropolitan and overseas peoples to one another one that would protect colonized people's material claims on an economy that they had helped to create and their political claims on a society of which they had long been an integral part, 
while also establishing conditions for su substantive self-management and self-government. They effectively called on France to accommodate itself to the plural reality that its own imperial history had created and to, to accommodate themselves in such a way that France would cease to exist, basically. So these are the politics of what I'm calling radical literalism. And here I think of Adorno's conception of, quote, a literalness that explodes an object by taking it more exactly at its word than it does itself. Senghor, for example, called neither for France to decolonize Africa nor for Africa to liberate itself, but for Africans to decolonize France. According to his program, African socialism would play a vanguard role in a process whereby the imperial nation state would be sublated, the national republic elevated <clears throat> into a plural democracy. In turn, this novel state form could serve as the elemental unit for an alternative global order. Senghor wagered that this post-national socialist state would allow humanity to pursue the dreams of solidarity and reciprocity proclaimed by different currents of post-war internationalism. It would seek to inaugurate a new epoch of human history through a process of interdependent overcoming. Colonial capitalism would be superseded by cooperative socialism. Illiberal empires would become post-national federations. International conflict would be displaced by civilizational rapprochement. Cold War antagonism would be transcended. Marxism and spiritualism reunited. Ethics and politics reintegrated. Multiplicity and democracy reconciled. This was a redemptive vision of decolonization as planetary salvation, as I said, utopian. Scholars have yet to attend, however, to this insight that real decolonization must operate on an imperial scale by transforming overseas and metropolitan societies simultaneously, and that the promise of colonial emancipation could only be realized if empires were remade into socio-political forms that were at once democratic and commensurate with a new epoch of planetary interdependence. According to our inherited political logic, however, we are supposed to counterpose a gradualist like Senghor to the real revolutionaries of the African independence movement. Of course, the political differences between Senghor and revolutionary nationalists, socialists, and pan-Africanists were significant. But on what grounds should we continue to privilege the moderate versus revolutionary taxonomy as the crucial axis of comparison and understanding? Alternative inquiries might attend to the difference between politics of autarky and the politics of interdependence, between territorialist and planetary optics, or between projects that presuppose the existing order and those that imagine other possible worlds. And I'm right at the end here. Such perspectives might allow us to treat Senghor, for example, and here I'm talking more about Senghor, but we can bring Césaire back in, as one among various types of internationalists, all of whom elaborated distinct solutions to a common concern with the emergent problem of neocolonialism. So there he should be in dialogue with Fanon, not counterposed to him. It might be useful to recall that while territorial nationalists like Sekutore and pan-Africanists like Kwame Nkrumah rightly sought to improve Africa's position in the post-war interstate system, someone like Senghor envisioned transforming that system itself through new forms that superseded state sovereignty. While they hoped to replace colonial capitalism with African socialism in the new nations or regional associations, Senghor believed that a socialist decolonization that did not also seek to revolutionize metropolitan societies could never succeed. 
So we don't have to uncritically agree with Senghor's specific proposals, and I disagree with many of them, or endorse his particular interpretation of socialism to appreciate how this insight might lead us to rethink decolonization in far-reaching ways. I'm not suggesting we should pretend that Senghor's aversion to violence or political caution about sudden change made him a committed professional revolutionary. It didn't. But I think we can appreciate the revolutionary implications of the kind of vision he outlines. I cut all this. Uh, his attempt to own... And, his attempt to end colonial imperialism and transcend territorial nationalism, I think, should be considered as a moral and utopian project whose ambition in Gandhi's legendary formulation was much higher than independence. So rather than dismiss Senghor as a failed revolutionary nationalist, I'm suggesting we revisit him as a flawed post-national visionary. I'll stop there. Thanks. Hope it wasn't too, too much over. Thank you. Oh, yes, of course. Uh, so, uh, thanks, Gary. Our next speaker is Jean-Claude uh, from Tulane University, uh, where he holds the Yvonne Arnoux Chair in Francophone Studies. And uh, uh, his research includes continental philosophy, literatures, arts of the Francophone world, African philosophies, juridical anthropology, and medical ethics. Uh, he has uh, numerous articles and four books, Théorie critique et modernité néco-africaine, de l'école de Francfort à la docta spes africana, from 1993, uh, la philosophie néco-africaine, l'art néco-africain, and la palabre, Juridiction de la Parole, and the, the last book, La Palabre, is uh, currently under uh, press at Indiana University, uh, along with a number of other uh, texts that Bidima has, has written, uh, and it's going to be entitled, entitled Law and the Public Sphere, uh, and uh, uh, Bidima and I have collaborated for a number of years now, uh, where Time passes quickly. Over 20 years ago, uh, we first recognized a, a crazy common interest of, of, of Black Atlantic or African culture and Frankfurt School philosophy, and uh, uh, have, have uh, worked together in different directions from that beginning along the years. And so, I'm very happy to to welcome him here uh, today to uh, talk about this uh, theme of violence and empire. Thank you. Thank you, Nick. And uh, I'm very happy to be here, first of all, and uh, to continue our collaboration and to meet with Gary and uh, Alberto. My subject will be, my, my topic is New Clothes in the Empire, Terrorism in Sub-Saharan Africa, Anthropological Stakes. I will speak of terrorism. Philosophical thought in Africa failed to truly take into account the phenomenon of terrorism until the organization of African unity mobilized against the politics of apartheid, which had been qualified as terrorists by the neighboring states of Mozambique and Rhodesia. This lack of interest in the phenomenon of terrorism can be partly explained by the newly independent state stance 
towards the idea of violence. Until the, the 70s, the attention of African states was occupied on the one hand by colonial violence. Several countries, primarily those Lusophone, Angola, Mozambique, Bissau, Guinea, were still fighting against the colonial Portuguese imperialism. And on the other hand, by the phenomenon of the coup d'état. Thus, the African political vocabulary, recycling at the same time the terminology of the colonial administrations and the early Marxist rhetoric, had only the following, exp had only the following expressions. A, subversive. B, counter-revolutionary. C, traitor, traitor of the state. D, member of the resistance. C, mercenaries. Terrorism as an action perpetrated by a person, a group, or even a state of which the complexity uh, of which uh, the, the complexity of sources is the main difficulties. This uh, term of terrorism has not been yet analyzed. South Africa terror, terrorist state was therefore qualified by, uh, by the diplomatic rhetorics. Little by little, the term terrorist was used in Africa to refer mainly to Islamist groups in Sudan, Somalia, Mauritania, Kenya, Tanzania, and Comoros. If terrorism tends to be used in Africa to refer any act of violence of unknown origins, it must be noted that with the attack against an Air France plane over the Tenere Desert and the attacks on American interests, in Tanzania and Kenya, terrorism already coexists with the old preoccupations and preventions measures against coup d'etat. The presence of the terrorist question first forces a look not only at the solidarity of the post-colonial states concerning their ability to contain, prevent, and isolate the phenomenon, but also arises the question of, of victims. The axis state victim would itself be quite limited if one did not add the questions, the questions of justification, leg legitimacy, of group cohesion, of survival, of leadership, of territory, and of hope. This presentation is not concerned with, the evaluating, with evaluating the problem of the juridical classification that leads that lead to the question of different forms of terrorism nor do, does it intend to discuss its different categories, from nationalism to pathology, nor the albeit interesting, the interesting question of moving the trigger issues of terrorism into a foreign political space, nor even the judicial means of combating terrorism, but because it concerns Africa, we suggest taking into account the anthropological variant in the analysis of the phenomenon of terrorism. Beginning with a brief state of affairs, first of all, we will evoke the condition of comprehension of the terrorist act in Africa, and finally, we will analyze the importance of the anthropological variant in the fight against terrorism. State of affairs first. The state of affairs here refers to a few major terrorist acts in Africa. The Horn of Africa, thanks to the dislocation of the Somalian state, Somalia, passed, passed nearly 17 years without a state structure. 
and Eritrea's fight for independence from Ethiopian colonization, in addition to relative proximity with Yemen, was the location par excellence for terrorist operations. On September uh, 12, 1969, two members of the Eritrean Liberation Front hijacked an Ethiopian Airlines plane, but they were overpowered and killed. Another Ethiopian Airlines Airlines plane was attacked on the 8th of December 1972. In in southern Sudan, in the midst of the civil war, a Palestinian operative took two Saudi diplomats hostage and executed them on March 2, 1973. In East Africa, Uganda serves as another theater for terrorist operation. On June 27, 1976, an air front flight coming from Tel Aviv was hijacked and diverted to Ugandan soil. The non-Jewish hostages were freed on June 30th. And on July the 12th, as part of the famous uh, Thunderball operation, an Israeli operative freed the remaining hostages. In neighboring Tanzania, in February 1982, a member of the Tanzanian Revolutionary Movement hijacked an Air Tanzania plane, and on August 7, 1998, a truck exploded outside of the American embassy, killing 11 people. In Kenya, another attack on the same day, August 7, 1998, against the American embassy in Nairobi, we had at that time 213 killed and 500 injured. Other attacks, like the explosion in the mid-flight on September 19th, 1989, of a DC-10 plane by UTA company in the Tenere Desert in Niger, bloodied Africa. But what interests us is to point out that today, thanks to the weakness of young states, Africa remains an environment conductive to the proliferation of terrorist groups that can profit from the atmosphere of ongoing conflicts. And those conflicts are Ivorian conflict with Liberia and Sierra Leone, newly recovering from civil wars. Sudano-Sudanese conflict with neighboring Chad, also struggling against militants left over from the northern rebellions, the rebellions of the 1970s. Congolo-Congolese conflict with varied inter- inter-ethnic m- massacres and above all the Rwandan prisons. Rwando-Rwandan conflict in binding the wounds of, the geno- of genocide with an instable Burundi to the side. Burundo-Burundian conflict that is not helped by Rwanda's uncertain national unity and the horn of Uganda's fundamentalist rebellion. Million, million current conflict with French army present on the ground. These conflicts, which also constitute conflicts of interest, are also related to values, collective identities, elements of religions. But in order to properly contain terrorism, it is necessary to comprehend, to comprehend it without explaining it. The etymological sense of comprehensio insists on prehension, the act of grasping. So how to grasp today the phenomenon of terrorism in Africa? So 
condition of precomprehension. The first thing, uh, the first uh, element which comes uh, uh, when we try to consider terrorism is the notion of resentment. Why does one accept to join forces against something in Africa today? Numerous objective reasons can justify the fact that an individual or a group might enter into terrorist activities in Africa. Resentment constitutes one of those reasons. In On the Genealogy of Morals, Nietzsche defined it as the feeling of impotence in face of evil, the feeling of always being cheated and, above all, suppressed rage that one day explodes. Nietzsche, in fact, considers that resentment is a slave moral. For a subject struggling with resentment, reality is binary, good and bad, and this binarism is fed by a sort of falsification, by the present hate, the vengeance, and the powerless directed towards his adversary. Nietzsche's resentment could be interpreted not only from the viewpoint of the weak seeking vengeance, but also as a ruse of those of, of the will of, of the will to power. There are three ideas to retain. One, the feeling of powerlessness. Two, the definition of the target for vengeance. Three, and the energy of vengeance pushed back by this hate. Freud will add would add that hate is repressed by the pulsions of self-conservation. But which is very important uh, 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 to us is that resentment never exists alone. It has preconditions. The first is moral. One feels as a, a victim of injustice. The question of the definition of justice is certainly, certainly that of that which is most fundamental to the idea of resentment and is related to the question of legality. The desire for vengeance implies a pre-existing offense or injury. Next, resentment is an incitement to action, which is not a simple reaction as Nietzsche believed, and is long-lasting. The conjunction between action and temporality pushes us to remark that Resentment implies, at the same time, latency and occasion. And finally, resentment is subject to desire. There is no resentment without desire. Numerous types of resentments, breeding ground of terrorism, could be meet, we can meet them in Africa. First of all, resentment towards the state. Since the attainment of independence, the latter is not, so, is not much appreciated by the civil society that finds, it, that finds in it an instrument of injustice covering deeds and misdeeds of minorities in power. Why do unpopular governments stay in power? The people, the young above all, find an answer. These governments are the work of the foreigner, and even if one wanted to change them, it would come to nothing. Here is found the first moment of resentment, that is, the impression of powerlessness and the feeling of always being cheating, cheated. 
If the state is not only weak, becoming authoritarian by the same token, but also does not fulfill its divine role in an equitable manner, then informal responses emerge. Corruption, money laundering, and resourcefulness thus create a veritable constellation from which terrorist activity can, be, can spring at the local as well as international level. Thus, as Beatrice Ibu considers, money laundering is an everyday operation in Africa thanks to its close ties with informal economy. Revenues gained from money, from money laundering are pumped into the informal economy. This resentment toward the state also comes from rebel movements. Second type of resentment is the one towards the colonial West. This type of resentment is most used by the intellectuals, political and religious elite, who in creating an identification between themselves, the elite, and the pupil, produce a rhetoric of criticism against the post-colonial state. From the critique of the post-colonial state, one slides towards the critique, the critique of colonization as it, it was the midwife of the colonial and post-colonial state. From the critique of colonization, one moves to a critique of the West in general, and from there to a type of racial criticism. The whites did that. The whites wants us this way. From there, whites, without distinction, a Swede from a nation that did not colonize Africa, is seen as an exploiter, a colonizer, a child of colonization. The indistinct target that has simply a certain skin color thus become the aim of the attack. African intellectual feed resentment through an Afrocentrist discourse. It is necessary to point out that, after all, Africa was the origin of Greek culture with its Egyptian boring. Such is, at any rate, the aim of the historical essays of the Senegalese Chekanta Diop. The West, the White, it would be useful to count the number of, time, the number of times the term white appear in the theoretical works of the sub-Saharan African elite. The different revalorization, often non-critical, of African culture, if one uh, can assess them, often turn into in an auto-celebration that fabricates an us opposed to the other whites. Terrorism frequently takes root in the opening, in the little cracks, and in the holes the holes left by polarizing totality. Between an us, the unjustly sacrificed victim, and them, the white, there is a rift that is being filled by several tales favorable to the rise of terrorism. Second and the third, uh, the third moment of uh, resentment is the anger, the notion of anger, the anger of the poor. Resentment is a repressed hate that awaits its hour of expression. But it is also the feeling of helplessness and of always being cheated. This powerless 
Africanness. Africa resent it. Resent, resents it. First of all, the prices of raw goods are fixed by international economy. Secondly, the debt of countries is only growing. And thirdly, Africa does not have a permanent representation at the Council of the United Nations, at the Security Council of the United Nations. And fourthly, diseases are only spreading, and above all, the population of 60% young people who know they will have to beg in their futures. These poor who are in the these poors who are in the African in the country of Africa suffer the burden of economic domination and in consequence political domination. The aid that is given to them and quickly uh, diverted by the elite is resented as an humiliation and a hindrance to, to creation. These beggar, nation, these beggar nations also have people who are ashamed. In the context of black Africa, the uh, particular relation intertwining shame, resentment, and the passage to the terrorist act have not been sufficiently studied. Rather, studies often concentrate on hate and not on shame as the engine behind certain terrorist act. The logic underlining this resentment combined, combines with numerous other pertinent and current issues such as humiliation, in any case felt as such, of the explosion of masses, the explosions of massive populations of African immigrants from Western nations. In resentment, the philosopher Scheller indicated to us a time of latency and maturation during which the urge for vengeance forms, forms in the psyche. From this, one signals his recognition. One undertakes terrorism out of a desire to be recognized. Do, so we have to analyze, at this point of time, the, the very notion of recognition. So I will not uh, stress on this notion. We could also analyze the notion of purity and separation in the terrorist act. But what could we do today in order to grasp very well the very notion of terrorism in Africa? First of all, what we have to do, what we could do is to examine the socio-political questions. In confronting terrorism, the first solution is to reinforce the rule of law in Africa. The non-guarantee of fundamental liberties Impunity and illicit enrichment weakened, weakened the state. Structurally incapable of fulfilling its true govern governmental functions in Africa, the state left the door open to varied fundamentalism. The subject of the relationship between religions and the state often occupies those who wish to understand the phenomenon of fundamentalism. But when it comes to sub-Saharan Africa, it is essential to add the ethnic var variant that can also play a crucial role in terrorist act. In the matter of the rule of law, the creation of a true public space of expression and the question of social justice are in Africa among the top priorities. Added to this, added, added, added 
to this major need is the obstacle of xenophobic nationalisms. Here we are thinking of the ethno-nationalist doctrine such as the, fa the famous Evoirité in the Côte d'Ivoire, which is a part which is a part culturalist, part biologizing figure of, fig, figure of ex exclusion. Regarding, and the second step after the rule of law is the notion of communication. Regarding communication, it is a question of guarding against allowing the internet to become an instrument of terrorism in Africa. The internet is welcomed as a tool that gives to Africa the necessary information on the state of the world, which was never before possi possible. However, the communication, however, uh, uh, the politician could imagine a type of control that would not amount to censure. Under what condition could control uh, under what condition could control be exercised without censuring? This is perhaps the obstruction that the terrorist phenomenon poses to communication in Africa. For, uh, thirdly, the notion of law concerning judicial means. The international provisions for the fight against terrorism should perhaps, without renouncing the aspiration of the universality of this law, uh, should perhaps find for each individual case, it's moments of universality. Otherwise, states ensure that these judicial anti-terrorism provisions are not perceived as are not perceived as colonization or repression, but as something that contributes to the public good. A pedagogical work of interpretation and of law should be undertaken. Fourthly, regarding the economy. One should take into account the matter of the informal economy because through it all sorts of mafia are transplanted. The informal economy grows in power when a state is weak economically. The, perme the permeability of the borders, the gaps in administrative control open a boulevard to a parallel economy that feeds terrorist sects. And Finally, the, socio, the notion of psychology. Regarding socio-psychology, we have to review the place of violence and its effects on human beings. How do state of violence, that of African traditions, and that transmitted by an uncontrolled globalization affect population? And how can this violence lead to terrorism? What are the means of control of violence in African tradition, for example? So I will stop there, and we will have to discuss uh, further in uh, the questionnaire. Thank you. Oh. to us uh, from Texas A&M, where he's professor of Hispanic studies. He's also been a professor at the University of Aberdeen, which is where, where we met and were colleagues, uh, as well as at Duke and uh, Wisconsin Medicine. 
He's held visiting positions in Spain, in Chile, in Brazil, Germany, Italy, and several universities in the U.S. He's the author of, pardon my Spanish, Interpretación y Diferencia, Tercer Espacio, Duelo y Literatura en América Latina, The Exhaustion's Difference, The Politics of Latin American Cultural Studies, and Líneas de Sombra, El No Sujeto de lo Político. He's also the uh, co-editor of the Journal of Spanish Cultural Studies of Res Publica and of Politica Común. Uh, his current projects in, include uh, uh, one, a book on Italian political thought called The End of Democracy, and uh, a second book project on post-libidinal politics. So welcome, Albert. Thank you, Nick. It's a pleasure to be here. Very nice to meet you, guys. Mm -hmm. uh, thank you for being here. I don't know if the first title of the talk was announced, but in any case, the title has changed. It is now called Angibasie. I will explain that word. It's a Greek word. Mm -hmm. Coming to geophilosophy. At the end of his paper on Leopold Sedar Senghor's redemptive program for African socialism, Gary Wilder discusses our current predicament as partly conditioned by, a quote, the collapse of the Bandung project for the resurgence of resource imperialisms, the supposed inability to imagine emancipatory alternatives to a seemingly unsurpassable neoliberal capitalism, and the democracy deficit of our post-national constellations, end of quote. It is to that extent that he proposes a reconsideration of Senghor's position, which he sums up as a dual plea, I quote, to end empire and desacralize national independence as the necessary form for the possibility of a global program for democratic self-determination. It is clear in Wilder's rather disenchanted endorsement of alternatives to mainstream decolonization practices throughout Africa that he does not quite believe that decolonization equals the formation of strong national popular states, that liberation is not simply a matter of delinking from the larger global economy, that no new man has emerged from the checkered history of anti-imperial struggles yet, and that therefore post-colonial studies ought to reconsider any number mm, of its old pieties and truisms. I agree with all of that, mm, by the way, but the situation is perhaps perceived differently from a Latin Americanist perspective. As a number of new Latin American governments are today moving in the direction, in a, in a direction seemingly consistent with liberationist and decolonizing ideologies, in spite of patent internal contradictions that may or not be may or may not be resolved in coming years, it is perhaps from those very contradictions, that is, from a Latin Americanist perspective, that I see an immense wager emerging for postcolonial studies today. Yes, I realize postcolonial studies is not the same as postcolonial politics, but I am, in any case, interested in the relation between the two. I do not think this suspicion that something needs to change rather drastically is merely a personal position of mine. I think the wager is historical or epochal for reasons to amplify Wilder's restraint list that go from actually existing post-colonial or decolonial politics in Bolivia and Ecuador, Guatemala and Brazil, from the populisms in Venezuela and Argentina, 
to the closure of the age of metaphysics in the Heideggerian and the Ridian determinations, to the onset of the Anthropocene age in Deepesh Chakravarti's formulation, given catastrophic climate change, to the terminal exhaustion of, area studies, of an area studies conceptuality in university discourse that has been unable to survive the withering of the nation state in neoliberal globalization. Something as punctual and significant as the recent changes in the Ecuadorian and Bolivian constitutions raises the stakes of the wager. If postcolonialist history must be concerned with the production of what Gilles Deleuze and Felix Guattari uh, in their last joint work called A New Earth, A New People, postcolonial studies demand a great deal of us Western academics. Let me sum up the stakes, as I can hardly do anything else in the time that I have, mm, by saying that it demands of us what I have called in the past and would like to call again an autographic inversion investment. You know, the Spanish word inversion has both uh, inversion and investment. Autographic inversion investment premised precisely on the difference between postcolonial studies and postcolonial politics. It may go without saying that any autographic inversion is also a radical opening to the concrete other. And to that extent, we cannot continue to ignore indigenous demands in Latin America or continue to confine them to variants of modes of production theory as it has been the norm. And it may go without saying that any autographic investment is also a serious expenditure that depletes the position of the subject of enunciation, exposes it, and may even ruin its accumulated symbolic capital. What perhaps does not go without saying is that this referent and desire must be for what I call a non-poematic conceptual productivity oriented towards the preparation of a new historical time. And this is not something that most postcolonial Latin American contemporary critique is giving us, rather the opposite, in fact. Yes, we are no longer in Bandung times or in the heady days of the Algerian War or the Algerian Revolution or the Cuban Revolution. And we are no longer in time in the times when decolonization could be premised rather unquestioningly on depositing of a sort of liberation based on ultra-subjectivist voluntarisms of the Sartrean or Fanonian kind. Whatever else we know, we have learned that liberation is not constructed and that the Kojevian concedes concerning the end of history in the final subsumption of the will of the master by the will of the slave were no more than, well, transcendental idealism. So when I say that postcolonial studies stand or fall with the possibility of non-poematic conceptual productivity for the preparation of a new historical time, I am appealing to no messianicity. The implosion of the major political categories of modernity, of the very architectonics of modernity, which on the one hand are clearly not to be missed from a, from a post-colonial perspective, but on the other hand were instrumental in every case for every projection of decolonizing and liberationist ideologies, including not least the Fanonian one that Nick has been studying recently, leaves us with little choice. We must produce new thought, difficult as it may be, if we are to live up to our promise of helping, more or less instrumentally, the secular struggle against violence and empire. And I agree with Nick that there is no reason to assume that a fight against violence and empire 
must in every case be a fight for peace and community. There has never been a sufficient discussion of the extent to which post-colonial studies or even post-colonial thought applies properly, or in what sense, to the diverse collection of countries that form as a result of revolutionary struggles against Spain starting in 1810, and that later include Brazil acquiring its political independence from Portugal. We know the term itself was never used by Latin Americans until recently. And when used, it was used merely as an extension of a, of a usage applied to other For us, speakers of Western languages, the very notion of liberation is intuitive enough. And we don't have to go back to Hegel's phenomenology or to the Marxian economic or philosophical manuscripts to endorse it. Out of a situation of imperial oppression, which causes alienation, misery, heteronomy, lack of self-rule, we must liberate ourselves from domination in order to accomplish something like a return to proper being understood as a form of being that is free to dictate its own autochtony, its own boundaries to itself. Liberation, however, is not only liberation from, but also liberation to. The notion of return hmm, is a complicated notion that might be contested by you. Hmm. Does liberation always necessarily entail a return to a previous form of being? From a Hegelian perspective, yes, it does as return is the essential form of dialectical movement. In liberation, history and nature resume their identity through the reassertion of a natural tendency to perseverance. For every liberation, there is a conatus, to speak like Spinoza. There is a being that wants to be what it always already is and wants to be left alone to pursue its own destiny. Liberation would then be, in its zero degree, 
the possibility of a return to autochthony, that is, self-rule, that is, democratic being. Mm? But that's just this degree zero, mm? the starting point. Postcolonial liberation would henceforward be the possibility of constitution of a regime of political life sustained by demotic power, by the power of all, after a struggle against imperial domination, which is necessarily, and in every case, a domination imposed from the outside, from the non-demos. Such is the zero degree of postcolonial liberation as a concept. Its meaning is coterminous with the notion of independence from colonial domination. There is no discernible difference initially, although, of course, Gary Wilder has already shown how independence can be questioned from the point of view of a more effective practice of liberation is redemption in the notion of, you know, against the nation state. But this is necessarily a second order move, a reflective move. On a first approach, there is no discernible difference between liberation and independence from a colonial situation. As what is at stake is the practice of self rule self-command, autonomy from outside, non-demotic interference. And at that level of abstraction, I suppose we all sympathize. The demand, which is a demand for political self-rule, seems unobjectionable. It is the political demand par excellence, hmm? the very demand for political self-constitution in the prevalence of the demotic principle of equality for all. Nadie es más que nadie. Hmm? as the Castilian saying goes. Difficult to translate that thing, you know? Nadie es más que nadie. And domination of any kind is by definition politically unacceptable. Nobody wants oppressive interference from the outside. Nobody prefers heteronomic rule. It is here, though, that things start to get complicated. In the very definition, in the conceptualization and thematization of what oppressive outside interference might mean, particularly if by outside we mean, as we should, any non-demotic agency of rule, for instance, capitalism. Yes, we can all intuitively agree on liberation on a first approach. And we will denounce Spanish imperial domination in Cuba or Puerto Rico or Portuguese rule in Angola or Mozambique. On a second approach, however, once we have kicked the Spaniards and the Portuguese out of the colonial business, things become more difficult to handle. And with them, the very notion of post-colonial liberation, even of post-colonial thought. We may begin by questioning the identification between post-colonial liberation and post-colonial thought. We tend to give it for granted, to take it for granted. Does a thought or a type of thought committed to a relentless reflection on the post-colonial situation always already liberate? Does liberation understood as liberation from oppressive outside interference think? It is possible that thought as a practice, provided it is thought, which is quite an assumption, <laughs> always already liberates. But that is not the same as positing that a thought of liberation liberates. Postcolonial history undoubtedly disproves it. Let us try a little phenomenological reduction by asking for a minute about the opposite of the notion of oppressive outside interference. In order for the notion to make sense, we will have to endorse the possibility of a non-oppressive outside interference, that is, of demotic interference within demotic power. This is not easy. What could be demotic interference within demotic power? 
It is not easy, but the concept demands it because no concept holds without a negative possibility to it. Unless we were to say that every interference is by definition oppressive, that is, every interference is by definition non-demotic. If this were the case, then we would have to uphold the notion of a pure and uncontaminated insight, a radical conatus of self-being. For every possibility of liberation, there would be an authentic core that must be preserved so that any change at the core be internally self-generated. But then we have drawn ourselves into a potential corner as the possibility of a non-oppressive outside interference, of a demotic interference, is seemingly incompatible with the need for the preservation and development of self-being. The concept of liberation, particularly as it has been used in the post-colonial tradition, potentially comes into its aporetic ruin. We are down to the need to uphold the notion that there is only oppressive interference, that every interference is oppressive, and that therefore liberation, which may very well include absolute violence, in Nick Nesbitt's determination, even as divine violence, can only be generated out of its own positive ground. In other words, if divine violence is not generated out of the, self, the conatus of self-being, then, uh, then divine violence is, it does not decolonize. This means that a community that must be conceptualized as originary, that is, as an always already pre-colonial community, as otherwise the colonial traces within the actually existing community could make the enterprise of liberation internally contradictory, is the only possible subject of liberation. Therefore, liberation can only be a return to the originary ground, and a thought of liberation can only be a return to the originary ground. There is no possibility of constructing liberation, only of undoing domination. With all due respect to the master-slave dialectics in the Kojevian conceptualization, the slave that works infinitely from a position of epistemic privilege in that the slave knows her position as well as the position of the master, whereas the master only knows his own position, hmm, does not construct anything. She only produces the possibility of her own freedom in what, she, in what is ultimately a return to the abandonment of fear, hmm, to abandon freedom. Hmm. There is a fascinating passage in Kojev's introduction to the reading of Hegel hmm, that we could read. The question for me as a Latin Americanist is, can we engage in a program of thought that seeks something like the reconstitution of a Latin American originary ground. Of course, it would no longer be Latin American. This would put us in the interesting position of endorsing something like a Latin Americanism without Latin America. But this is attractive. <laughs> a Latin Americanism without a subject, perhaps without an end a Latin Americanism beyond the pleasure principle. Such might be the only possibility for a proper engagement with a post-colonial Latin America. Yes, we may make the proper engagement suitably improper. We should be fully aware that there is no possible termination of the project, that the reconstitution of an originary ground will never be consummated, will never be achieved. This is an infinite, savage project. But why not? It is not as if we had any other choice. 
I'm coming to the end of my time, so I have to be very brief. Hmm? You must think I'm mad, hmm? which does not help things. Hmm? An originary ground, hmm? as if we could undo 500 plus years of history, as if we could throw the real world out of the window. Hmm? But you see, it all depends on how we, uh, on how we conceptualize the very notion of, our, of an originary ground. What if the originary ground were not a ground of affiliation, but a ground of alliances? What if we could learn from contemporary anthropology that the structure of affiliation that regulates all our notions about the ground and about the originary is precisely a notion always already rejected by the so-called non-historical peoples that still populate, for instance, the Amazon basis? What if we could set our political expectations not on a return to a pristine Tawantinsuyo, but on the possibility of a savage democracy based on what I would like to call the potential virtue of a post-hegemonic theoretical practice? What if the demotic principle of non-interference were to be based on the ontology of war that Eduardo Viveiros de Castro has explicitated as proper to the Tupi Guarani? That is, on an ontology of exchange, not identity, on an ontology that always already looks for interference as the only possibility for the manifestation of being. I would like to present for discussion then the exploration of a transversal line of flight against violence and empire and beyond postcolonial studies that I will indifferently call geophilosophy or cosmopolitical philosophy. For Latin America, such line of flight must be thoroughly invested in the anthropology of indigenous life that T. Mingle used to call philosophy with people in it. Cosmopolitical thought has a demotic agenda, but it is a minoritarian agenda that wants to look both beyond the ruses of colonization and the false rhetoric of decolonization, of liberationist decolonization, decolonialization, for the sake of a return to an originary ground of thought against every configuration of filiational thought. Cosmopolitical thought might make the Les Anguataris words about Captain Ahab its motto. I will read them. These are beautiful words. They inspire me. Mm -hmm. I have no personal history with Moby Dick, no revenge to take. Hmm? Talking about the presentiments that you were talking about. Any more than I have a myth to play out. But I do have a becoming. Becoming, which as they say, is always of a different order than filiation. It concerns alliances. Is something for which, I quote, only a minority is capable of serving as the active medium. And becoming is the very possibility of history, or at least of a new history. Already in A Thousand Plateaus, the Les Anguatari tell us that, I quote, history is made only by those who oppose history, not by those who insert themselves into it, filiation, or even reshape it. And they continue, free the line and the diagonal instead of clinging to an even elaborated or reformed vertical or horizontal. When this is done, it always goes down in history, but never comes from it. This is the originary ground for the production of a new alliance, for the production of a new relationship between territory and earth. 
And in what is philosophy, the Lady Sangoatari had, I quote, philosophy cannot be reduced to its own history because it continually wrests itself from this history in order to create new concepts that fall back into history but do not come from it. How could something come from history without history becoming would remain indeterminate and unconditioned, but becoming is not historic. In Gelassenheit, a little book that has been translated as Discourse on Thinking, Martin Heidegger wonders whether, I quote, man's work in the future could still be expected to thrive in the fertile ground of a homeland, end of quote. The question was whether a new ground and foundation could be granted again. Mm-hmm. That is, not a return in any real sense, but a new possibility of a relation to the earth, a new bodenständigkeit, mm-hmm. a new rootedness. For, therefore, a new relationship to originary ground. Mm-hmm. For Heidegger, there was no question that it would have to be new, mm-hmm. and it was a question that could only be decided by history itself, mm-hmm. or by becoming, in other words, by being. As is relatively well known for Heidegger, there was a letting be, an essential realismment towards what he sometimes called the mystery and at other times the open, mm, which would help prepare for that new historical beginning. Towards the end of the conversation on, on a country path mm, that forms the second part of Gelassenheit, the scholar, one of the characters in the conversation, offers an ancient Greek word mm, that we know because it is, I think this is fascinating, the single extant word in Heraclitus fragment 122. Mm-hmm. Don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or being. Being calling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not true. Connection. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, the scholar offers an ancient Greek word that we know because it is the single extant word in Heraclitus Fragment 122. The scholar offers it as a word that may perhaps say something about the nature of thinking. That is, I quote, the essentially human relation to that which regions being, something we presence as the nearness of distance, end of quote. The word is angibasie. Mm, from anhi, near, close, nigh, and baino, to go. Mm. The translation the three interlocutors settle on is moving into nearness, moving into nearness. Mm. Kirk and Raven, mm, the British scholars that uh, reproduce for the English-speaking world what Dills and Kranz did with their great collection of the Presocratics, mm. Kirk and Raven propose that the word be connected to the Heraclitian notion of fire, the world fire, or logos, mm appealing to Sextus, who compared, I quote, the resuscitation of the soul fire by restored contact with the universal logos with the way in which embers glow again when brought near to a live fire. In the nearness of distance, that is, in moving into the nearness of that which regions, meditative thinking, which I would propose to associate radically with the Deleuze and Guattari idea of a plane of consistency or composition, a plane of immanence, the plane of becoming, as opposed to their plane of organization and development, plane of transcendence, which is the place where Heideggerian calculative representation of reason obtains. Meditative thinking, I was saying, opens up. Mm. 
If for Heidegger the reign of calculative representation, within which we must clearly place the liberationist notion of the coloniality, and this is of course important because everything hinges on this, liberationist thinking is calculative representation, ruled by filiation and analogy. Okay, so if calculative representation, filiation and analogy characterizes the end of, of philosophy and the study of metaphysics, for the and Guattari, I quote. All we need to do is to sink the floating plane of immanence, bury it in the depths of nature, instead of allowing it to play freely on the surface, for it to pass to the other side and assume the role of a ground that can no longer be anything more than a principle of analogy from the standpoint of organization and a law of continuity from the standpoint of development. So this is what we should not do, in their opinion. Mm -hmm. Our question as Latin Americanists, the question for which we may not be prepared a question that must force an autographic inversion, an expenditure, and a risk can only be answered by the possibility of a becoming indigenous. Mm? Because only in becoming indigenous might it become possible to open up the question of the originary ground at the end of metaphysics. There is a lot to study and a lot to think, mm? not least the very idiomaticity of so many almost lost languages. Let me offer the notion of Angibasie as a name for a movement of thought that is not just transformative, productive of the becoming I have called autographic inversion, but also in a radical sense immemorial. It helps us return to the original ground of thought in alliance with Latin American indigeneity, but against every possibility of affiliation with it. We want no universal AEU. This is García Linera's call for a universal AEU. We want no universal AEU. In the same way, we would not want a new resuscitation of analogical transcendence camouflaged as liberation for all. And yet, that seems to be all we have at the moment. So, we do have work to do. Thank you. Mm -hmm. maybe, maybe the best way to, to start would be to uh, field a few questions from anyone who has them. I, we, I'm sure we have, I know I have lots of questions of my own, uh, but uh, but maybe we can take three, four, five from you all to, to get things going, and then uh, and then we'll just go from there. We're scheduled to uh, to go until 4.30, and uh, so already that gives us uh, nearly an hour for discussion. So uh, let's just open it up to, uh, to begin. I have a question for, for Alberto, and thank you so much for your um, great, great plea for, for a new geo-philosophy. Um, I guess my question would be, just to try to make it simple, and perhaps you could even uh, correct me or formulate it in a better way, but it seems to me that, that there, is a, there would be some kind of aporia in your formulation of a post-foundational moment at the same time that you seek uh, a ground that is based on an origin. And so uh, it seems to me that at the same time that you're trying to escape that matrix um, of identity by implicitly taking, I don't know, without problematizing the idea of origin, wouldn't there be also a risk uh, of formulating or arriving at some kind of uh, 
of the two moments that you tried to to avoid, which was, I think, the dif the, 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 the difference in the decoloniality and the identity in, in the postcolonial. And you also mentioned, uh, which uh, is also part of this, I think, you, you mentioned alliance, or that is, um, this geophilosophy as a way of alliance, but that is not affiliation. And I would like to hear a little bit more, perhaps, of how you initiate no. Okay. Uh, alliance and affiliation. Okay, that's a crucial question. Thank you so much, General. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you you focus on the answer to the question, you know, by by, by talking about the difference between affiliation and alliance. Mm -hmm. um, I do call for a return to originary ground. Okay, but. I call for a return to original ground, not on the basis of filiation. Okay? Uh -huh. In other words, what is at stake is not the origin at all. Uh -huh. Okay? Uh -huh. Because the notion of ground uh -huh. has been criticized uh -huh. on the basis of a thoroughly filiational uh, structure of thought. Uh -huh. Okay? And the critique of ground uh -huh, that we know uh -huh, from post-foundationalism, post okay? Or from you know contemporary cultural studies mm? doesn't just go deep enough if you allow my my new aphorism. Okay. Mm -hmm. In other words, um, a return to original ground mm -hmm. is simply a dissolution, or if you want a deconstruction, okay, of all the constructed categories mm -hmm. that have everything to do with filiation mm -hmm. that we know as ontotheology, mm -hmm. as we, that we know as metaphysics. Mm -hmm. That we know as the creaturization of the world, you know, on the basis of the Christian God as Father. Mm -hmm. Okay, so return to original ground, in my terms, mm -hmm. is a, is, a, is a play, it's a game, if you want, but it is a very serious game. Mm -hmm. um, it has to do with undoing every structure of affiliation. Mm -hmm. Okay, for instance, when in the preface to the book Indigenous and popular thinking in Latin America that I know you're about to read. Okay. The, editor, uh, the editor of that book uh, says that for Latin Americans today, there is a very clear choice, and that choice is to reproduce imperialism and to become imperial subjects once again, uh, or to think through indigenous categories. Uh, okay. That alternative is an alternative affiliation. Okay. That alternative is clearly an alternative of filiation. Mm -hmm. uh, I say absolutely not. That choice must be rejected completely and absolutely. Mm -hmm. okay. The choice, therefore, is never affiliation. That's why I say at the end, uh, we don't want a universal AEU. Mm -hmm. Because you see, that's just an inversion <coughs> of imperial Western thought mm -hmm. on the basis of, a, of, of the imperial thought of the Dawanti Insuya. Mm -hmm. okay. There are differences internal to. Latin American indigeneity, and the big divide is between imperial languages like Quechua and Aymara mm, and Amazonian languages that are languages produced by societies without a state. Okay? Obviously, the situation is much more complicated okay? because not all Quechua speakers were Incas and so forth. Mm -hmm. right? But the language itself and the structures of Tawan uh, Suyo were imperial structures. The Amazonians were never actually beautiful books by Pierre Clast on that stuff, and Philippe Escola, and Viveros de Castro, and so forth. Alliances precisely means what I call angibasi, okay? 
coming into the nearness of a distance, okay, which is always already involved in the very idiomaticity of languages. <coughs> we can only come into a nearness, hmm? but coming into that nearness is, I think, what the lesson what they mean by becoming. Mm-hmm. Okay? Mm-hmm. They say over and over again, becoming a dog doesn't mean that you become a dog. Okay? Mm-hmm. Becoming a woman doesn't mean that you become a woman. Mm-hmm. Okay? The situation is precisely a notion of breaking the plane of organization and development okay? mm-hmm. in favor of the other plane, the plane of immanence, which is a plane that moves but, you know, through diagonals, through lines, through you know, passing between points and so forth. Mm-hmm. Okay? So I think that's what is at the stake. It is a new figure of thought. Okay? And if you want, it is a new figure of the concept, mm-hmm. because also the lesson of the make it clear in your philosophy. And, you know, I don't normally quote the lesson of the okay? No. This is not something I do. Okay? It is not, it's not something I've done in the past. Okay? But that chapter in geophilosophy, in Buddhist philosophy, is a central a chapter of cosmopolitical philosophy today. And it is in absolute dialogue with the rupture of European uh, philosophies of history, namely the, the Hegelian and the Heideggerian one. And it is a break mm-hmm. okay, that enables us to practice this coming into the nearness of distance, this anti this coming to geophilosophy, that I think is something that we need to do as Latin Americanists because we have never done it. Okay? The, the, pre, the previous attempts were called indigenismo. Mm-hmm. And indigenismo was a thought of affiliation thoroughly connected with the national popular state. Mm-hmm. Okay? Postcolonial studies has been caught up in that structure. That's why postcolonial studies is becoming increasingly relevant. Mm-hmm. Not just that, not just relevant, but in fact dangerous, mm-hmm. catastrophic. Mm-hmm. Okay? Because it keeps insisting on, the, on those figures of filiation, of genealogical provenance, on ground in the ontotheological sense. I'm trying to use the notion of original ground in ways other than mm, ontotheological, therefore in ways other than Eurocentric. Mm. But I cannot claim that I speak for the indigenous. Okay? All we can do is establish that project of an, of an ears, mm, Okay, That requires a lot of work. Mm. I mean, I know it is not easy. I, I only have... I don't know how many years left, you know, perhaps 15. I do my best, but, you know. (laughs) 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 Thank you so much. I have another question for Professor David. I I guess a couple questions. One, just to return to the, unless I misunderstood, still why Latin Americanism versus the sort of post. Yes. Post, you know, planetary. Yes. Yes. And then the second question would be sort of in terms of this coming year, I'm wondering, and not emancipation, what the verb is sort of for an approach to the global sphere of capitalism. What is the what is the gesture? What is the scale? Can you rephrase the second part of your question? Well, the second part is if 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 one of the empires that was sort of being floated here comes the current form of capitalism. Yeah. What is the gesture of, you know, I don't know, intervention or withdrawal or yeah. diagonal to? So it's not emancipation. Yeah. It's probably not coming near to what is already. In, well, first part of your question then: Why Latin Americanism in the context of geophilosophy, cosmopolitical philosophy? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Okay. So the the obvious answer is that I will give you, which is Latin Americanism is simply hmm, a matter of situational consciousness. Okay? But I think the task is global. Okay. Hmm? Latin Americanism is what I do more or less. You know. So I, I need to work on my own turf. You know. Others can do it on their own on their own structure. You know? So there is no. You know, I'm calling for a Latin Americanism without Latin America. That already, that already tells you something, I think. A Latin Americanism without a subject. Okay. Uh, I think the key thing is geophilosophy, uh, which, of course, is a really difficult thing to do, particularly because we are bound by language structures, and you know, even if the linguistic term is over and we are now somewhere else, you know, I, I still think language is important. Okay. And and so we speak Spanish, okay. and there's a history there that we need to take into account. And we never have. That is what is extraordinary in the Latin American tradition. Hmm? Latin American has basically provided one thought to, post to the post-colonial studies configuration. And that thought, whatever it is, has only one content, identity. Hmm? Okay? And, with that, and within that identitarian structure, hmm, what has never been thought about is the indigenous. Is remarkable. Okay. Mm -hmm. So we need to break up, and that is your philosophy, and that is our task, our concrete task as Latin Americans. Okay. Um, the second part of your question about the structures of capitalism. Well, yeah, I mean that's an old, an old problem, right? Which is, if you talk about metaphysics, then you don't talk about capitalism, and if you talk about political economy, then you don't talk about metaphysics. Yeah. But the problem is bigger than that. Mm -hmm. The problem is that we will never break away from capitalism mm -hmm. unless we break away from calculative representation thinking. What is at the stake here is, the, is, is, is technology okay? and the technological framing of the world mm -hmm. through neoliberal globalization. Okay? My calling for meditative thinking, mm -hmm. the abandonment of, cal of calculational representation mm -hmm. in favor of uh, a thought of becoming, a thought of alliance, and, a thought of the originary ground mm, is completely mm, and clearly meant to uh, to abandon uh, the, the very frame of mind that capitalism fosters, okay? and that can only be done uh, with consequences. Okay? Those consequences remain to be remain to be worked out. You know? I mean, it's not so easy. Yeah, yeah, we are anti-capitalist. I mean. The linking has been the word used ever since Samir Amin and the, and the dependency theorists. Okay? The linking doesn't work. Everybody knows that. Mm -hmm. Franco tried the linking for those things. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. North Korea. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> the linking is not the solution. Can I say something about that? Since you mentioned delinking, you know, and referring to, just to be clear about the kind of argument I was making and to kind of think along with you. I was not trying to suggest mm -hmm. in some kind of general programmatic way mm -hmm. that any kind of national social project is uh, misguided okay. or bound to fail at all. In okay. fact, I kind of assume the same pragmatic position that the people I'm studying, that I claim the people I'm studying are assuming, which is that you know it may or may not be the right move. So it's definitely not an argument for global democracy or federalism as opposed to the national state. But it is an argument against those who would dismiss someone like Senghor or Cesare simply because they were not 
revolutionary nationalists. And in that sense, you know, it, it, it's so, and in part, because I think not only if we study them do we get a kind of deeper and more nuanced understanding of the post-war period, but I think they can speak to us. And your paper kind of confirms that for me in a certain way, because it's different. I don't want to kind of make facile comparisons or connections, but there is a way in which these guys, in a certain sense, were trying, however problematically, to imagine what would a political form, not just a kind of ethic or a political or like a cosmopolitical ethic, but what would a political framework look like that encompassed a lot of the features you're talking about. They were precisely thinking about what a post, to use your language, what a post-filiative democracy right. might look like. So there are all these moments where Césaire talks about uh, my ancestors, the people of Paris in 1848, in this very provocative way. So it's precisely a politics of alliance that that is post-identitarian, but is not kind of global in some kind of facile Kantian way. But this attempt to fix, so I guess that's a comment that my question might be, you know, it struck me, I haven't done the reading yet, but I've been very interested in the kind of politics around indigeneity. I don't know much about it in Latin America, but in the sense of legal pluralism. And that's what they were also trying to figure out, is it possible to have a non-unitary, a non-Jacobin democracy, actually, a kind of, is legal pluralism possible? And But when I have brushed across the Latin American literature, I see self-determination being used in a kind of uncritical or not yet, re so is there ways in which this category of self-determination is being taken up in interesting ways for the project of plural democracy, or is there a, a lag between the kind of post-affiliation post politics you're talking about and the kind of categories that are used around self-determined? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that, and that's the question I wanted to ask Bidima, you know? Okay, so. Uh, because, I mean, this is a huge problem, uh, and of course it's a problem that has been triggered and uh, put out in the open by the inclusion of multinational perspectivism in the Ecuadorian and, and, and Bolivian constitutions. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, Morales says, I want communitarian justice. Mm -hmm. And communitarian justice is a kind of Sharia law, you see. Mm -hmm. Has nothing to do with, uh, with international jurisprudence, mm -hmm. Western-based international jurisprudence that we're familiar with. The problem, of course, is that it is based on an older form of justice, which is called an eye for an eye, mm -hmm. okay, mm -hmm. and a tooth for a tooth. And if communitarian justice means mm -hmm. um, we the people are going to judge you, mm -hmm. uh, communitarian justice uh, runs uh, the risk of violent injustice. Mm -hmm. <laughs> South Africa also is exactly. dealing with this constitutional exactly. Mm -hmm. exactly. So that's why, yeah, we don't want affiliation, we want alliances. Mm -hmm. Uh, we don't want multi-cultural multi respect uh, uh, in principle as a value, mm -hmm. okay? We don't want relativism, mm -hmm. okay? Uh, because I would say all of those things fall within the framework of representational calculus. We want something else mm -hmm. in the name of values that I consider, and this is something that refers to a previous conversation, mm -hmm. essential and not Eurocentric, mm -hmm. that are values of democracy democratic self-rule and, and, and the presence of the democratic, of the democratic principle, okay? In other words, if I contest communitarian justice in the moralist sense, it is not because it comes from the AU communities in the Altiplano, in the Bolivian Altiplano, mm -hmm. 
if I contest it, it's because they're not just, they're not democratic. Mm. They're abusive and violent, mm. okay? And if we shoot ourselves in the foot mm. and put ourselves in a position in which we cannot make those claims because we're immediately told, oh, Eurocentric, you must be a yeah. Eurocentric Democrat yeah. fascist, which is what we hear yeah, yeah. From, what, from what we have out there today, mm. that's not useful, mm. okay? So that was my question for you. When you talk about law in Africa, mm, what's your thought on, on precisely like an official that Gary was bringing up? Mm, multiple jurisprudences, mm, community-based, mm, or, or you know, what, is the, what is the main impetus for that? Well, I have, uh, I was extremely happy to, to hear what you, what you said about uh, the notion of becoming first mm -hmm. from Deleuze. And secondly, the notion of a relation. Mm -hmm. So when we speak of law in Africa, uh, we have two kind of, of law, the law which is promulgated by the state, colonial state, and we have also what the colonial rhetoric uh, uh, called coutume, uh, mm -hmm. which is a kind of law. But my thinking is that we don't have to oppose them. We have precisely to find the becoming of both. Mm -hmm. First of all, state law and what they call coutume. That is why the notion of becoming is extremely very important. And we have also to find alliances between this kind of normativities. Mm -hmm. That is why uh, you could find uh, during um, the genocide of Rwanda, you could find on the one hand common law in Arusha in Tanzania in order to judge uh, the people who were involved in, genoc uh, in the genocide of Rwanda, but you find also the gachacha, which are tribal law. So I would like in each kind of law to find, first of all, the moment of becoming and also alliances between th those kind of law. And uh, the, the second term of my, uh, of my, uh, my response is that in each indigenous moment, in each uh, state norm, we have to find out the moment of universality, mm -hmm. as Hegel used to say, the moment of universality. Because, for example, if you take any, uh, any trend of uh, in the, what they call indigenous law, first of all, you don't have to, to put an absolute the tradition. Tradition is, by essence, crossing yes. from two. Because in the, in the very notion of tradition, you have transmission. So things are not uh, static. You have becoming and relation. That is why, for me, it's not uh, to, to have a kind of dualistic thinking, saying that, oh, state, and uh, you have the coutume. But between both, how can we find the moment of universality among them? That is like my answer. I have another question for Didina. Oui, yeah. What, uh, <laughs> terrorism. Uh, why retain the category, the concept itself? So I found myself thinking, on the one hand, terrorism, which seems generally in the presentation that you made to be, uh, um, a, let's say, a top-down Attribution yeah. from from the uh, point of view of power that turns the object of attribution into the abject, let's say, for example, versus 
something like the concept of terror, yeah. which I've, I've thought about as perhaps a moment that could be provisionally defended or explored as a certain necessary moment. For example, for me, the, the, the necessity of terror in the form of, for example, the Haitian state as a slave-free state in a global system of slavery was perceived as terrifying, yeah. but it was also intended to terrify. Right? Exactly. Dessalines precisely wanted to terrify the slaveholding state so they wouldn't reinvade and, 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 and reimpose slavery. And, and there weren't many other means uh, because there was no economy, there was no military, there was no navy, and every minute the French Restoration was was coming up with plans to reinvade and get the the slave machinery back in gear, making money mm -hmm. since Napoleon till 1848, uh, and so that in certain limited, precise contexts, something like terror might be the one of the few arms yeah. available to to um, to a to a to a. Uh, an impoverished state or, or subjects, um, but but why retain the, the, the concept of terrorism? Yes, um, w w while formulating my my problematic in this question, I asked myself, well, how do you call terrorism in African languages? You don't have such words. Secondly, the rhetoric of terrorism is, as you said, something which was imposed. And when I did uh, a semantic way how terrorism came in the African uh, uh, arena, I, I saw that terrorism was the terminology of... Um, uh, it, it wasn't the terminology which came from from the bottom, it was the terminology from the top, and even uh, during colonial resistance, what which was resistance according to the state was was terrorism. So I, I am aware of that because I didn't have time to 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 give all the consequences of this very notion. So I, I just took terrorism as the state implies it, but I am aware of that. So is there something that you're imagining along the lines of your response to Alberto? Is there a becoming out of a line of flight, to use the Deleuze uh, terminology, out of terrorism? Yes, but uh, we, we can't call it terrorism. I, I do personally prefer the term resistance, because we, 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 they, they can call it sabotage, but I call it resistance. We have some modalities of resistance today in Africa. You have uh, 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 symbolic resistance, you have economical resistance, you have forms of resistance. But when you discuss with uh, the, the people from the World Bank, they will say, oh, this is corruption. Oh, this is informal market. Oh, this is black market. That, according to me, is those are the forms of resistance. Uh, they, they, they try to resist the, 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 the very uh, oppressive way of the empire to impose upon people a kind of pressure. So I have, in order to avoid the term terror, terrorism, I do use the term resistance, which is much more, according to me, much more, uh, which fits with uh, what is done in, on the ground. So that is uh, what I could, I could give as, as, an, as an answer.
What is the relationship between what you mean by resistance and violence? Well, every kind of resist every kind of resistance is somehow violent. You can't avoid you can't avoid violence when you resist. Uh, uh, Violence doesn't mean that you break. Violence means that where there is some norms, accepted norms, you produce enemy. You go beyond or out of. That is violence. Violé, for example. Uh, for example, when you 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 you, you drag, oh, il a violé. You, you went out. So violence you you can't create without having a kind of violence. You can't resist without having, uh, assuming a kind of violence. But violence doesn't mean uh, a, a productive violence. You have we have productive violence and a destructive ones. But you have to destroy also the, the status quo. So according to me, I don't take violence in a very very negative way. You can have it in order to uh, to create something. You have to violate another one. I would like to know a little, or to hear a little more about the role of language in this uh, non-national utopia that you were talking about. And I was thinking in particular about Césaire mm -hmm. and his uses of language. Is mm -hmm. that part of your analysis? Because the, the, the going beyond the nation is also has to do with imperial languages. Mm -hmm. There's this terrific interview that Césaire gives with Jacqueline Nair in, must have been mid-70s, late-70s. And this speaks to this question of post-colonial theory and identity. And it's a fascinating exchange, because in the exchange, she is pleading with him and then pushing him to acknowledge that writing in French is a form of alienation for him, and that it is impossible for him to express himself in a true and authentic, phenomenologically correct way. Mm -hmm. And he's incredibly gracious in different ways, saying, look, I speak Creole, but I've only written in French. I have, I have French is the language in which I, that is my habitus. He doesn't use that, that yeah. term, but that is basically what he's saying over and over, and finally, just short of frustration, he kind of says, look, I can understand why people in France or people like you might have a problem with me <laughs> claiming being French in my own particular, which has nothing to do with mimeticism or assimilation, but I don't have a problem with that. So I think that's a very interesting kind of way in which someone like Césaire, and now, of course, that's a Caribbean issue that is different from an African issue. This goes back to the originary ground. I mean, someone like Césaire and Caribbean intellectuals, you know, they're going back to what exactly? There are, of course, all kinds of vernaculars, and there is Creole, and there's everyday life and everyday language, and yet the idea of a kind of more authentic, and I don't know if this is what you're, I'm just kind of thinking out loud along with you about the question of language. So there's a way in which his whole political project is condensed in that kind of gesture, whereby both Césaire and Senghor in certain ways say, look, we refuse to accept that we come at Europe or at kind of post-Enlightenment philosophy as foreigners, right? If we think of this as modern thought, and we are quintessential moderns in a certain way, and empire is part of modernity, 
we own this as much as anyone else owns this. And uh, our politics, and that's what I kind of meant by radical literalism. Now, of course, language is linked to power and hegemony, and especially when you talk about education. And on the other side, in Africa, there are kind of all kinds of, you know, languages of everyday life and, and, and languages of literacy also. Um, not so much in Senghor as part of Africa, but uh, Senghor was also very, very attached in his whole life to uh, bilingualism and bicephalous education. So this kind of question of education was a tricky one and one of the frustrating, these guys were poets. So they had worked out political theories in some ways or bold, but they were underspecified. So it's not really clear you know, whether, you know, whether there would be a kind of language of the Federation or 25 languages or you know, whether French would kind of be just a linguistic, the French language would be a linguistic medium but would no longer connote ethnicity or territory. It was this kind of attempt to be post-identitarian, which of course raises as many problems as it. And also, Solves. just one, one other thing that, that reminds me of, Césaire has this great quote where he says, uh, Je ne connais qu'une France, celle de la Révolution, celle de Toussaint Louverture. I only know of one France, right? Because everybody's accusing him of selling out on decolonization and integrating Martinique into France instead of getting it out into an independent nation state. And he says, uh, I only know of one France, that of the Revolution, that of Toussaint Louverture which says to me two, at least two things. The first of all uh, is, is that there's a, a very specific and original relationship to history and the past that's being put forward, which is a discontinuous one. It's not France as a totality, France as it is today, France as it is in the French Assembly in 1948, whatever, but it, it's rather one of certain cherry-picked moments. Uh, of 1789, 1794, the abolition of slavery, 1848, etc., the Commune, but it, but also a second one, which is the link to Toussaint Louverture, which is is uh, 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 this one that uh, uh, says I, I specifically identify with one figure, Toussaint Louverture, for lots of reasons, of course, but one of those uh, similarities is that both Césaire and Toussaint Louverture identified with France as a concept, basically 1789 or, let's say, 1794, uh, uh, the moment of the abolition. And, and they, they uh, uh, tried to negotiate precisely this sort of an experimental relationship of, uh, 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 what's the phrase, Alberto Nearness? Yeah, near coming distance, into the nearness, uh, uh, which which yeah. which Césaire called Toussaint's original federalism uh, uh, as a way uh, to to um, sustain um, singularity, um, the uh, all sorts of different singularities. But of course, in Toussaint's case, Napoleon wasn't having any of it, and and so invaded. Uh, and Césaire's a maybe a more complex and nuanced question that, that Gary is exploring in really fascinating detail. But I think that there's, there's, a, there's a very interesting uh, additional dimension. It's not the language question, but it's, it's, it's rather the reference it's to concept, justice, yeah. affiliation, all of these things, as opposed to identity, because Césaire so often gets reduced to negritude as black identity, when instead 
it's, uh, it's, it's a very different issue of principles like justice as equality, uh, absolute equality. Uh, Alberto first, oh, and then okay. Medima. Well, I wanted to throw another concept, historical concept, to the, on the table, which is the concept of Marranism. Mar mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. Because for me, um, I mean, that is, the, of course, the secret tradition of Hispanic thought, okay? A tradition that has been always alive, you know, but at the same time always disavowed, always negated. And, um, and I think it is, you know, we need to bring it back um, to think about these issues. It's much more productive than so many others, you know, that we have used. And uh, I also I wanted to, to remind you that uh, there is a great text by Derrida called Monolingualism of the Other. Mm -hmm. which actually he calls himself, he's speaking as an Algerian, remember? Mm. He's speaking as an Algerian, and he's making all kinds of reflections about, you know, French mm. as an Algerian, as a colonial subject, and so forth. But then at the end he says, but, you know, more than an Algerian, and more than a Frenchman, I am a Marrano. Mm -hmm. And he uses the Spanish word mm -hmm. in the text. It's interesting because, to me, it makes us reconsider that whole history of deconstruction as a, as a Marrano, as a Marrano history. Deconstruction is Marrano philosophy. There is um, another I thought you were talking about Maronage, and it's a, such an interesting resonance between So it's a very fruitful misunderstanding. So, you know, in, in another text that is not as well known, Ethics, Institutions, and the Right, the right to Philosophy, the reader is asked the question of language, you know, and, he mm -hmm. says, and he says something like, the importance is, the, the, real, the crucial thing is to preserve idiomaticity in any usage of language, you know, to preserve idiomaticity radically. In other words, it doesn't matter what language we speak, mm -hmm. provided we can, we can keep it alive, you know, as opposed to, for instance, the kind of international English mm, that is kind of becoming petrified and ossified and is taking a lot away from mm. idiomatic English, you know, local usage, you know, originally grand kind of English that we're talking about. So that, yeah, we need to, you know, think about uh, uh, a non-filiational non use of language, that's precisely where English is not mine as opposed to yours, you know? And, and that goes for any other language, you know? But we can all speak any language, you know, from a, from a thoroughly idiomatic perspective necessarily, mm -hmm. and recognize that, make it, make it uh, visible. Mm -hmm. uh, the resistance comes from, you know, filiation and ontotheology. You know, mm -hmm. the French do not want to contaminate their their mm -hmm. language with the with the impurity of the Quebecois accent mm -hmm. or whatever it is. You know, mm -hmm. but uh, so there are alternatives to that. Mm -hmm. No, no, just uh, I was trying to 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 to. to to, to, to support what you, was, you were talking about. Um, uh, Césaire said in uh, Return to my native land, in, in this book, he said, ma négritude n'est pas une tête morte. Means that uh, there is a moment of universalism. It's mm -hmm. not tied uh, with... Uh, blood, exactly. To skin. To the skin, tied. yeah, of course. Mm -hmm. yeah. I, was, I was really interested in how... Um, 
And I think that this is, I, I suppose this is likely that this would be something that uh, one would talk about when thinking about violence is the question of means, uh, which was, which took place in a number of uh, the papers. Alberto asking uh, how to go about getting to self-determination, even, mm. even if we recognize it as absolutely necessary. Mm. Um, and also, Gary talking about the, the, the complicated possibilities of thinking about um, human, the object as human emancipation without uh, immediately linking it to violence. And I was wondering if you, um, I'm trying to think through the, the question of means further, and I, and I, I really like the idea of um, questioning violence as a metric of politics. I wonder if you could push that all the way to say, to question means as a metric of politics. Because mm -hmm. um, right now, a lot of people are thinking about how, unless the means look like the end, it's not possible to get there. Um, and so it made me think, on what level would you question that logic? Uh, and I also was wondering about, in the specific case of Cesar and Segoa, if you see not so much a um, sort of means-ends logic, but some sort of logic that takes into account the means as somehow not contradicting the end, if that's why the move is away from violence, or if you or if you feel it's more a matter of, I, 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 I was following you on the sort of pragmatist in the sense of experimental. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if that means experimental in the sense of, well, we have this object, how do we get to it, which is sort of means ends logic, or kind of more, uh, how do the means link to the ends question? Um, can they contradict? And if, if they can, does that somehow subvert, not, does that still sustain the project of human emancipation? Or does Many questions <laughs> packed into one question, so I'll just kind of start talking and hope I get to, to some of it. They, in their writings, they weren't preoccupied with kind of thinking through the relationship between means and ends in politics, although in their political practices, this experimental approach is evident, whether in terms of the way in which they privilege the outcome, like emancipation, and are untroubled whether the methods they're using do or do not correspond to the kind of political recipes, for example, for liberation that were then uh, that 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 were then um, that were then current or in the ways in which at certain historical turning points, like Césaire in 1956, when decolonization, he decided, had become a source of domination and no longer opened up the possibility for the emancipation he hoped for, he abandoned the project and pursued a different kind of project, this federal project. So that capacity to reorient. So as an analyst, to me, it's like, how do we get our minds around the fact that these smart guys claim to be thinking and acting in revolutionary ways, 
when their politics don't comport with what we know to be revolutionary. For many years, I thought, well, that's the part of them I don't like, or that's the part of them that's wrong. But for this recent work, I said, well, what if I actually thought with them and believed them and said, like, well, in what way could something like decolonization, uh, departmentalization even be imagined? As, I mean, what was he even thinking? Did, I mean, if we accept that he was acting and speaking in good faith when he said, you know, here's the revolution, we joined France, huh? I mean, he wasn't just, you know, hypocrite. I mean, this, this is, you know, I'm assuming good faith, as my friend Fernando Corniello, we said, assume good faith when you begin. So uh, in terms of my own, my, you know, then in terms of them, I'm also torn in, in focusing on means and ends because part of what they also, you know, they were poets. And they had a very developed theory of aesthetics an understanding of aesthetics, an understanding of the poetic object, the way in which something could be always more than it appears to be. There's a kind of, there's a kind of, uh, kind of disposition towards imminent critique, to use Marxian language, that they always had, which came from their poetics. And that meant in many ways, you know, and this is the utopianism I, I refer to very briefly, pursuing the impossible in this concrete, deliberate, methodical way. What's going on? There's a certain way in which when you pursue the impossible in a dogged way, that's not a good correlation between means and ends at all. So again, is that stupidity? Is that uh, you know, pig-headed this? Is that naivete? I have to think, well, something's going on. And it's linked to their poetics. It's linked to their aesthetics. It's linked to a, a different idea, which you're also putting on the table of politics, that isn't about instrumental action. All of, I mean, their whole idea of human emancipation was about a kind of, whether we agree that this is possible or not, a liberation from the kind of instrumentalities around which, you know, everyday life is governed. Senghor kept saying, uh, you know, freedom is not material well-being. It's spiritual well-being. It's cultural well-being. It's psychic well-being. It's existential disalienation as well as anything else. So there was a way in which they also questioned kind of any kind of political calculus. And yet they were, you know, politicians. They were leaders of political parties. They were parliamentarians who were including alliances and trying to get legislation uh, passed. So as someone who reads texts carefully and who's a historian of political action, it's difficult because some of their speeches in the National Assembly are beautiful instances of non, you know, poetic political theory and political poetics and, and drama, dramaturgy. And on the other hand, they're trying to persuade, you know, they say certain things for certain reasons in very instrumental ways. So that's all a way of saying this is tricky. I could say more, but I mean, great set of questions. But that, those kinds of questions are at the heart of what I think we have to, we have to do a lot of unthinking about assumptions about politics when we even get into these poet legislators. Alberta. Well, you know, I like to read thrillers. And, um, and I recently read one, which is not very good. You know, it's called Panther by a guy called Nelson DeMille. And at some point, Nelson DeMille, the, the character says, if it is about you, you do what's good for you. But if it is about something bigger than you, you do what's right. Mm. Okay. This is Nelson DeMille, you know, just talking trash. I mean, this is <laughs> But... The sentence uh, includes something that is, again, you know, present in so many cultures. This is not a Eurocentric, it's not a Eurocentric conceit at all. You know? 
But Kant's systematized it. I mean, you, you made a reference to facile Kantianism, yeah. but yeah. Kant obviously is thinking about democracy. And I, I think return to the dictionary ground is a return to democratic rule, you know, to nadie es más que nadie. That's what it is about, right? Um, and Kant made the difference, made a differentiation between what he called the political moralist and the moral politician. Yeah. Okay. That alternative between political moralism or, or moral politics is absolutely essential. Um, the moral politician is, of course, the politician who follows what in Kantian terms would be the moral law. Mm -hmm. But in, in your terms could be, you know, utopianism or uh, or return to original ground, whatever you, however you define. Yeah, I think it. of it in terms of futurity. Yeah, exactly. A world yet to come. Yeah. The political moralist is radical evil. You know, the political moralist is the person who puts his or her own interest first. And I think that's condemned in just about every culture. You know. okay. Certainly, for instance, in the Amazonian cultures that build class studies. You know. Well, obviously, the differentiation between means and ends in, in, uh, in, the, in the vulgar Machiavellian perspective, because Machiavelli used that talking about the prince, but that's not what he claims in his Republican theory you know, or his conception of democracy. The differentiation between means and ends is something that we need to abolish. Precisely because uh, a politics of means is a politics of radical evil. You know? I mean, there is an interesting thing, which is well, I leave it there. <laughs> this is too complicated. I want to talk about bad Machiavellianism, mm -hmm. but bad Machiavellianism is a complicated thing. Diacronalización de la identidad 
like and put an emphasis on the kind of a communal community. Yeah. Okay. Like a, a choice that is part of a community to be what? I mean, that's a very difficult question because, you know, I'm not much into identity and I'm not much into community. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think, I think those are traps of uh, modern thought, okay? And, and we're not going to get anywhere following, following those ideas in the same way that we are not really going to, to advance a lot by dividing time between synchrony and diachrony. You know, that division of time is also a thoroughly uh, representational calculative understanding of time in response to that. And that is precisely what we need to get away from, you know. I try to point at that by talking about the notion of history in the Vesan Guattari, and how they say that uh, uh, history never produces anything, okay? Uh, becoming is what produces, and therefore it impacts upon history. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that that responds to a, to, a, to, an, to an understanding of time. You know that difference between history and becoming, which cannot is not commensurate with the difference between diachronicity and synchronicity. Okay, um, synchronicity from from a Synchronicity responds very much to uh, to uh, to, uh, to a Lagrangian understanding of time up to now. Okay, and this comes from the way from Aristotle to us. Yeah. Um, the choice is never there. Okay, the choice is always temporal, but not along the axis of diachronicity versus synchronicity. Precisely because the choice is never necessarily the choice made by a subject. The choice is something that always comes to you mm -hmm. under constraints mm -hmm. we'll call in situation of consciousness before. Mm -hmm. okay. But they're not of your own making. I mean, even Marx in mm -hmm. the Communist Manifesto talks about that. You know. History, uh, what is the sentence? Uh, people make history under conditions not of their making. Okay. So decisions happen always under conditions not of your making. Okay. And therefore, decisions are always are more constrained by what the, what the was around you mm -hmm. than by, than by yeah. I mean, they talk, the reader talks about this as passive decision, taking an old Heideggerian and living as thing. But, uh, so, you know, again, your question is great because it is a very important set of uh, problems that you bring up, okay? But my reaction to that is that I would, I would want to contest almost everyone. Identity, community, diachronicity, synchronicity, and so on. Choice. Alberto, I have another question for you. There were two, two different terms that I, I heard in your talk, if I heard correctly. Uh, on the one hand, divine violence, Benjamin. Yes. I was quoting you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So <laughs> I didn't know that. Uh, well, so you'll. Uh, I, uh, and that maybe invalidates my question, but I'll ask it anyway. <laughs> so I'm wondering, well, on the one hand, yeah, <laughs> divine violence, and at the other, on the other hand, I uh, was intrigued by the concept of savage democracy, yes. and I heard Lévi-Strauss there, right. and La Pensée Sauvage, uh, particularly because Absolutely. you were talking about Absolutely. relation, about structure, about language, about uh, uh, alliance, etc. 
uh, and I was having trouble simply seeing how those two concepts uh, uh, cohabited. Okay. Uh, but maybe mm -hmm. since you were quoting me. Well, no, I, you know, I, I would like to say a few things about Sabbath's democracy. Okay? Sabbath's democracy, yes, okay. So, so, look, we need to bring back the old Levi-Straussian differentiation between what he called science and what he called bricolage. Okay? That seems essential to me. Uh, because the, I mean, the active principle of the differentiation that Levi Strauss introduces, we will have to refine it a little bit. And we know it is a dialectical thing; it's not an absolute uh, divide. Okay, but the active principle is the, is the principle between figure and concept. Okay, which is something that Deleuze and Guattari bring back up again in the, in the chapter on your philosophy. Okay, and they attribute figure to imperial configuration and concept to democratic configuration. Okay. So the mapping in the and Guattari is almost opposite the mapping in Levi-Strauss. Mm. Because for Levi-Strauss, bricolage is what belongs to culture, mm, whereas concept theory is what belongs to science. Mm -hmm. okay. We need to revise that. Viveiros de Castro has done it in his book called Cannibal Metaphysics. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Mm -hmm. By going back to the first chapter of, of La Pancée Sauvage. But certainly Levi-Strauss is at the origin of these theorizations. Okay? The point is, for me, that Sabbath's democracy is precisely what is not majoritarian democracy in the liberal democratic configuration of modernity. Okay? Sabbath's democracy would be something else. I try to use the notion of becoming minoritarian, okay? becoming indigenous, to refer to what I meant under the notion of Sabbath's democracy. Uh, if it is true, and this is something has, that has been claimed by all the Italian political thinkers that we were talking about, Esposito, um, Agamben, Negri, Tronti, Cacciari, and so forth, if it is true, and Carlo Galli, Carlo Galli in particular, that all the fundamental concepts of political modernity are over, okay? if it is true that the notion of the people can no longer be sustained, if it is true that the very notion of the nation can no longer be sustained, if it is true that the notion of representation, we've lost it essentially, you know? Through history itself, you know? If it is true that that history, the architectonics of modernity, has come to an end, of course that includes the ruin of post-colonial thought. We, from that perspective, we come to understand how much post-colonial thought was just another reproduction of modernity as science, okay? Mm -hmm. We need to break away from with that. What do we do? Well, we have to reinvent the terms that we cherish and that we don't want to give up. Okay? For instance, uh, I said, you know, I quoted Tim Ingo's notion of philosophy is anthropology with people in it, mm -hmm. which I like very much. Okay? But if Tim Ingo had said philosophy is anthropology with the people in it, I wouldn't be quoting him. <laughs> okay? I like people, but I don't like the people. Mm -hmm. And so forth. So for me, Savage democracy is precisely that. Mm -hmm. okay? Let us imagine democracy mm -hmm. as a practice of autochtony, mm -hmm. okay? as a practice of return to the originary ground. Mm -hmm. okay? but, uh, but let's make it clear that we are not talking about the same old thing. Mm -hmm. So, Savage, why not? Mm -hmm. I said Savage, why not? Mm -hmm. yeah. Great. Well, perhaps we should. Uh, 
leave it there and let the con the conversation develop uh, from this point. And so thanks, Thank everybody, you. for coming. Thank, Thank you. To our speakers uh, for, for stimulating.